I always joke that the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse are fear, greed, hope, and ignorance. And only ignorance is not an emotion. More portfolio value in public markets and private markets has been wiped out by fear, greed, and hope than any bear market. Welcome to The Four Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording with Jim O'Shaughnessy, and I have to say this is one of the best conversations that I've had in almost 300 episodes. We cover a lot today. We start on the question of you can always understand the son by the story of his father. And we have just a great conversation about how um, our parents, our loved ones, the people early in our life really set the tone for who we become. We talk a lot about his early days in his career as a quant investor, what it takes to be a quant investor, the thought process that goes into it. We talk about the difference between probabilities and possibilities. And then we bring it home on what he's doing at OS Ventures, O'Shaughnessy Ventures, and the remarkable things and investments and films and creativity and art that he's funding and why it's going to be so important and what he deems the great reshuffle that we're going through right now. So thank you for continuing to join me and enjoy the show. Hey, guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest-growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. My grandfather was an amazing guy who was basically created the world's biggest privately owned oil company and then proceeded to way ahead of the Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's of the world, give away about 95% of his fortune during his own lifetime. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. Uh, which I'm incredibly proud of. He, he, he was a wonderful guy. And literally sort of king of the wildcatters was his title. But the, the really great irony is the, the way he really made his big fortune was he hated Joe Kennedy. He thought he gave the Irish a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime, like, so I had the privilege of having dinner with him after my grandmother died. I was... He lived in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I grew up. And so after my grandmother died, I was like the grandchild there. And so he would come over for dinner twice a week, and I learned a ton from him. But so he hated Joe Kennedy and by, by extension, Wall Street. He said, everybody on Wall Street's a crook. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing my future employment. Anyway... All of his oil buddies were speculating during the 1920s, and they were all doing it on margin, 10 cents on the dollar, and they all got wiped out. And he went and bought all of them out, 
pennies on the dollar because he had cash. Interesting. And I'm going to tell you, you just laid the foundation perfectly for where I was actually going to start this conversation. Cool. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. (laughs) I have had so much fun getting to know you more the last 24 hours researching you. And there's something that you said that really struck me and you just kind of laid out the foundation for it. So we'll start here. You said you can always understand the son by the story of his father or fathers. The story of the father is embedded in the son. And you just talked about, I believe, your grandfather or maybe great-grandfather. What do you mean by that? I think I, I mean by it that, you know, we're not born as blank slates. We, we come out and we have these incredible quantum computers up in our noggin. And, you know, we are ready to be presented in any environment. Right. That's why we have all these extra brain cells when we're kid, when we're babies. And, and yet we come out pre-programmed learning how to speak any language. We come out pre-programmed with our genetic inheritance from our ancestors. And so that's the kind of baseline. Right. But then we get imprinted very young in age. Right. Like, you know, are, are you going to get a winner's script or a loser's script? Are you going to get a alpha or a beta script? And, and that's the part where what the grandfather, the father, the son, the grandson, and let's be very clear, the grandmother, the mother, the daughter, it's, it's universal. It's not just men it's all of us humans and and so as you mentioned and as we were chatting i grew up with kind of an extraordinary grandfather who for much of his life was one of the biggest privately owned oil companies in the world and yet he went on to give away about 95% of his fortune during his own lifetime and thus the environment that I grew up in was one where I just constantly saw give, right? My grandfather stole the line from Hello Dolly, with which was, you know, money is a lot like manure. If you pile it all up in one place, it stinks to high heaven. But if you spread it out, it's the best fertilizer <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And, and I really, really took that to heart. So you know, I, I realized at a very young age that I had been born not only on third base, maybe kind of born sliding into home plate. <laughs> and and so I got lucky. You know, they, I had n- nothing to do with picking my parents. And I, I guess there are some religions that believe you do, <laughs> but let's put that aside and say I, I don't subscribe to those. And And so I got very lucky. And, you know, I continually sort of repeat to myself, I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. And so I think that that's what I mean by that. The, the, the importance of the, your family, the importance of the people close to you, they shape you far more than you are even consciously aware of. And, you know, I'm a big journal keeper and I have 
journals going back to when I was 18 years old, and I'm 63 now. So I literally have 40 plus years from 18-year-old Jim all the way up to 63-year-old Jim. And there's a, there's a great quote, which is, the, the faintest ink is better than the best memory. And, and so one of the things that I continually see as I go back through these are these themes. Like, and I didn't really understand that when I was younger. And it's kind of like what, I can't remember whose quote it is, but life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards, maybe Wittgenstein. And, and so I kind of think that's what I mean. We, we start with raw clay and, and we all, all of us humans have this base programming in that allows us to learn language, allows us to learn how to walk and, you know, do all of those things. But then on top, and then of course, the genetic inheritance that you receive from your ancestors. But then your father, your mother, your grandfather, your grandmothers on both sides and your siblings all really start to shape you and affect you the way you look at the world, how you act. Are you going to be a high agency person or not? Are you going to be a person who says, look, I got this great hand, I got to play it. But are you going to also say that if you get a shitty hand, right? You got to play them all, I guess would be the way I would look at that. Is it fair to say that maybe the biggest influence on a person's life is maybe their parents or grandparents or lack thereof? I think that they, for, for the, as, as I refer to it, imprinting, the early imprinting is certainly the parents, grandparents, siblings. But when you get into your teenage years, one of the other things that I have found by doing kind of relentlessly researching this is that you kind of shift to your peers being much more important to you than your parents. But if, if we kind of think about it as down here, the parents, the siblings, the grandparents, the family, that's the foundational part of you. Then as you get older and you grow and change, your, your peers become incredibly important to you and shape you. That's probably one of the reasons why, you know, you are the composite of the five people you're with the most. So, so definitely it, it, it's a continuum. But I would also say that a lot of people go through life without like just questioning any of this, right? And, and one of the things that I found is incredibly effective is always question, always like, why do I believe this? Does, does, you know, do, do I believe this? Because, you know, my mom told me a story. She used to always cut the end of a ham off, right? Before she put it in the oven. And I, and I said to my mom, mom, why do you, why do you do that? And she laughed. She had a wonderful sense of humor. And she's like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> this is the way I always did it. And she goes, let me call my sister, my aunt, Jean, who is her older sister, and, and find out. So my mom gets on the phone and she asks, and then she just starts laughing. And she hangs up the phone and she says, because my mother's pan wasn't big enough for a full ham. <laughs> 
so th- we all do those things on autopilot much, much more than we are aware of. And so unless you kind of constantly question, you know, why do I believe this? Is there like anything supporting this opinion of mine? I, I think a lot of people, myself included, because we're all running human OS, right? We, we tend to believe our, our minds are, are, are structured thus that it's kind of like, I have an opinion about X and our mind immediately says, this is not an opinion. This is a fact. <laughs> and, and we need to understand that most of our beliefs are not facts. And in fact, most of our beliefs are wrong. And when we really do a deep dive on them, we discover that. And then so it allows us to continually be agile and improve our explanations and beliefs, right? So like we start out here with some silly beliefs, right? Naive realism, the world's out there, I'm in here, you know, me is me. And then we start reading and we start experiencing life and we're like, huh, doesn't seem that to be true that that is that. And so I always advocate you can you can get much you can improve your mental models continuously and and to do that though you've got to be really willing to say you know what that was wrong i was wrong so let me learn from that i think most learning comes from being wrong and and we kind of concurrently have this fear of being wrong of looking bad of you know that's socialization again right and, and so if you're not afraid about being wrong, wow, you can learn a tremendous amount. Do you think that in today's world, I love that framework, where now with social media and the internet, we're confronted with the opportunities to either confirm our biases or, or our, what we believe are facts or opinions almost by the second. I mean, you can get on Twitter and just go down the list and your your brain is working at, at a rate where, you know, maybe before the internet, there were four or five things a day that confronted you where you had a, a an opportunity to either believe that opinion or believe it's a fact. And now as humans, we're, we're met with that opportunity sometimes thousands of times a day. I'm trying to figure out what the question is, but do you think do you think that's changing us as how we believe and perceive things in the world because we're forced with this kind of ability to make a decision so many times a day on what we believe or don't believe? Yeah, I think that there is definitely a thing that is called cultural, cumulative cultural evolution. And, you know, try explaining one of these to somebody from 1970. You know, the the closest that they'll get, because Star Trek was on back then, is they're going to say, oh, that's a communicator, right? But it's been proven there's a great book called The Weirdest People in the World, and weird is an acronym for wealthy, Western, I don't know the rest of it, educated. And and they pretty much definitively prove by looking at MRIs of people's brains. And one of the things that they did, and they start with this, and it kind of like it shocks you into the awareness of this, is there is our brains, the brain of an illiterate person is structurally different than the brain of a highly literate person. What? 
how the heck did that happen? Well, we evolved and we came up with writing. And that was, again, remember how we come out and we're, we can all talk no matter where we're dropped. You know, if you're dropped in China, you're speaking Mandarin. If you're dropped in Paris, you're speaking French. If you're dropped in New York, you're speaking New York English. <laughs> and, and, but reading, different thing. It takes kids a long time to learn how to read because it's more a recent event in our evolutionary path, right? So what it, what happened? The external world, books, changed our, our, physiog- our physiology. And what the brain did was it colonized the part of the brain that had been used for facial recognition. Now, why would it do that? Well, it did that because when we were hunter-gatherers, our visual acuity was really important. When Grog was coming through the trees, we had to instantly know, (laughs) is Grog friend or foe, right? So we had this incredible facial recognition that we didn't need as we evolved into farming, into cities, into all of that. So the brain colonized it for literacy. So do, is the external world affecting us humans? Yes, absolutely it is. Social media. So one of the things that is also really fascinating, there's a guy, he died recently. His name's, he was Professor Flynn, and, and he has a, an effect named after him called the Flynn effect. What he did was study IQ or G, general intelligence. And he looked at the earliest of those tests, which were done circa 1900, and then looked at them whenever he was doing it. I don't know the date, probably 2000, 2005, thereabouts. And what he found was we have, as a species, become smarter. And he's trying to figure out why that is. And what he concluded was, We moved from a very concrete type of thinking. We thought in terms of things, right? Like, so that's a cow, that's a bear. One of the examples he gives is that these farmers in Germany in 1900 would be told that at the North Pole, there are these things called polar bears and they're white. And if you were surrounded by snow, and a bear started coming at you, what, expe- what would you expect him to be? And everybody answered brown because all they'd ever seen with their own eyes was a brown bear, right? What happened as quantum physics came online, all of these things came online and we moved our ability to abstract thought far more to that ability from this concrete, this is this, that is that. And we moved it to our ability to abstract broadly. And that gave us tremendous leverage over much of the modern world. It created much of the modern world. So back to social media. Look, it, 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 it absolutely depends on, are you aware that we feel great dissonance when we see something that is the opposite of what we believe, right? All of us do. Again, a human OS, me, you, anyone. And so what we tend to do 
is seek out opinions that agree with what we already believe. And that's called confirmation bias. You know, the behavioral finance guys talk about it all the time. But if you try to strike through that mental model and, and understand, well, I'm probably just doing what I would all, what I'm programmed to do, find <laughs> evidence and stuff that I agree with and say, but, but the facts, the facts. And, and so what happens is we create these bubbles and we follow people who are just like us and who think like us and who have the same particular set of beliefs as us. And, and that my, my friend Tim Urban, who writes, wait, but why? He's got a great book about it and, and he, he does it's, I can't remember how he refers to it, but the tree of knowledge or something that's down here at the monkey level. Right. And, and, and so if we have the ability to understand that we're probably wrong about a lot of stuff, we should be open to other points of view. And it doesn't mean we have to adopt them. It simply means that we should continually challenge our own point of view. That's healthy, I think. And so in social media, tribalism, right? So I, I, I joke on Twitter that political Twitter is forbidden for me because all it is is idea, I, ideologues shouting at each other. And, and the thing that makes me incredibly sad is that the majority of those people are, are cannon fodder. They're foot soldiers. There's a great book by a guy who was a longshoreman and became an incredible philosopher, Eric Hoffer, called The True Believer. And, and he talks about this quite a bit. And it's hard to overcome our own evolutionary DNA. And, and so we do seek out like, like seeks like, right? And, and in many instances, that was a, a highly profitable genetic inheritance because we had our tribe that protected us, right? But the, the problem is that, you know, if you're in a tribe, what, what are the first two things you got to do? Well, the first thing you got to do is get along, right? Because if you are back in the hunter-gatherer days and tribe, you're not getting along, <laughs> they banish you and you die. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our first programmed response is to fit in, right? But then the minute we're pretty secure in our idea that we fit in, then what do we do? We try to stand out, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the whole reason that we have these hierarchies and, and all of these various signaling mechanisms. And, and so it's, it's a quandary, right? You, you, you got to fit in, but then you want to stand out. And, and so social media, does it change our brain? Absolutely. It does. Does it, does it shorten our attention span? If you use it the wrong way, absolutely it does. If, on the other hand, you are very, very aggressive in the way you curate all forms of social media, right? Not just Twitter, but all forms of social media, then despite all of the incredible missteps that Mr. Musk has made at Twitter and the missteps that Jack made before him, I still believe it's very Lindy. It's very anti-fragile. I mean, like this thing just won't die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think that's the network effect, right? Because there's so many people on that particular network 
that to kill it is going to be really, really hard. So it's very anti-fragile. But the, the, the point that I was going to make is I still believe there will emerge. I always said it was Twitter. It might not be Twitter, but there will emerge a global intelligence network and we're building it. You know, it's the human colossus and it's getting built. And we now live in an age where it used to be you, you, you grew up in Fort Worth, right? If I wasn't in Fort Worth, you and I would never know each other ever. We wouldn't really have a chance or you were here in New York, right? We just, there are opportunities to get to know one another, to talk to one another, very, very limited. Now the world is your oyster. I have friends all around the world. And that is because of this human colossus that we're building. And, you know, again, it can be used for really great things. It can also be used for really bad things. It's, it's like, you know, in all the debates about like AI right now, for example, is it good? Is it evil? It's neither. It's a tool. Can it be used for good? Absolutely. The use cases are enormous. Can it be used for evil? Absolutely. Unfortunately, the use cases over there are also numerous. So rather than try to imbue a technology or a platform or a lever or anything like that with some sort of essence of good or bad, we need to understand that they don't possess any of those. The users of those tools are the ones you want to look at. I want to talk in detail about what you're doing today at OSV, and you just touched on it. But I think before we talk about that, it would be important to set the stage at the earlier part of your career, which was in quant investing. And you just mentioned things like having an open point of view and you know being able to challenge the status quo. And I am a real estate person. I am not a quant. But when I think of open point of view, that to me, I go, well, if you're quant investing, you have an algorithm and this is what the algorithm says, and that's the point of view. So let's just kind of start with, again, going back to how you were raised and you said your grandfather didn't like Wall Street, but you made a career on it. How did you get into quant investing? And like, what is quant investing? You create an algorithm and then put it out into the world and then it just trades stocks all day and you sit back and watch. Like, how does it work? Because this is going to set the tone for what you're doing today, which I think is, is fascinating as well. Thanks, Chris. So take a step back. How, why did I get interested in this? It was the most interesting puzzle that I saw at an early age. I mentioned that my grandfather gave the majority of his money away during his own lifetime, but there was some left. And that went into a foundation. And so every quarter, all my aunts and uncles showed up. And when I was, I always wanted to be at the adult table. And, and when I finally earned that privilege, I was seated next to my favorite uncle, Uncle John. And he and my father were having this very heated discussion over IBM. And I was listening and basically they were going back and forth and it was all about the CEO or the products that IBM had. And I just kind of, I interjected, wouldn't it make more sense to kind of look at how much money they make and how much you have to pay for that? And they're just, and basically they said, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> 
But so <laughs> that ignited my curiosity. I'm like, huh, I think they got it all wrong. I think that what you really want to do is you want to look at the underlying characteristics. It's like, right, if you're going to a doctor, do you want him to just look at you and say, yeah, you look healthy. Go ahead. No, you want him to take your blood work. You want him to take an x-ray. You want him or her to, to be able to have data that says, ooh, you're very healthy or ooh, you need some help. So you need to look underneath, right? And so that gives birth to what defines a stock, right? What defines a stock are the factors that that stock possesses. So some stocks have super high valuations. It means investors are big believers in the future of that stock and are willing to pay through the nose for it. Other stocks have super low, which means that investors have very low expectations. Generally, what happens is super high expectations get dashed, right? Nothing grows to perfection, right? And, and super low expectations, pretty easy to beat, right? Like if you have zero expectations for a stock, it's not going to earn any money for the next four years. And then it comes in and earns a dime. Like everyone reevaluates and they're like, Ooh, we got that one wrong. And so you build out these series of factors and you use them to short circuit human OS. I always joke that the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse are fear, greed, hope, and ignorance. And only ignorance is not an emotion. More portfolio value in public markets and private markets has been wiped out by fear, greed, and hope than any bear market. And so basically what I try to get people to understand when I'm talking about why would you be a quant, essentially you are arbitraging human nature. We, we talked earlier about, you know, people sometimes have their beliefs about things wrong. One of the things that we really have a wrong belief about is our own abilities. All of us men are the worst here, by the way. <laughs> if, you, if, you give, if you give a man a quiz and you say, Okay, so there's we're going to chunk things in 10% buckets, right? So the top bucket is you're in the upper 10% of this particular skill, all the way down to number 10, you're in the bottom 10%. And then you say to men in a survey, where are you in your athletic ability? Guess where men put themselves <laughs> in the top two buckets, and then and then the the stragglers who are a little bit more <laughs> modest put themselves in the third bucket. Well. This cannot be statistically true. <laughs> same with thriving, same with insight, same with intuition. We all believe that we are much better than we actually are. And so, by the way, that is good for survival. That is good for all those things. It's really bad for making investment <laughs> choices. Yep. And so <laughs> what happened to me was I built out all of these facts. And this is kind of the dark age, just when... I was writing about it. The first book I wrote was called Invest Like the Best that showed you how you could clone your favorite portfolio manager. The book I'm best known for, What Works on Wall Street, was essentially, hey, how do all these particular factors perform over huge spans of time, right? Because the other thing, I, we just have all of these 
these kinks in our human OS. And, and one of them is we are hyperbolic discounters. What does that mean? It means that anything beyond five years it doesn't matter. Like that, that is infinite. That's infinity. We don't think about that at all. And so what we don't understand is if we hyperbolically discount, what do we do? Our emotions get aligned with what's happening right now. Why do you see the majority of sales at bear market bottoms? Why do you see the majority of buys or a bubble at the top of that bubble? Because we just cannot, the, the, the siren song is so strong that our human OS just drives us to do it. I'm guilty of it. Like I wrote a, I wrote a piece in 1999, April of 1999 called the internet contrarian in which I said, this is the biggest bubble that anyone alive today has, has seen. It's probably bigger than the 29 bubble in this particular sector. 85% of these companies are going to be carried out feet first. Even the companies that do survive, and I mentioned Amazon, are going to be 95% lower in price than they are today. That's analytical, Jim. That's quant, Jim, over here, because that's what the numbers were telling me. Well, Human OS, Jim, what did he do? He founded an internet company. (laughs) (laughs) So... When you see this at work in your own life, right, it freaks you out a little bit. And so the ability of having a set of algorithms that buy and sell for you is really good, especially if you're a longer-term investor like we were with O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. But does, does that mean that we set it and forget it? No, not at all. We had a huge research team that continually researches, are we missing factors? Are, is there information that we aren't aware of? One of the reasons why I became so interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence is I kind of viewed that as the next frontier of quantitative analysis, right? And, and so the models, well, directionally remaining the same, right? Buy cheap stocks on the mend is one of the best strategies in the world. What does that mean? It means their their valuations are super low, their price is turned a corner, right? And that's momentum. And cheap stocks on the men, man, that's a powerful strategy. How many people are gonna use it? Virtually none, because it's a very volatile strategy. So again, hyperbolic discounting, that O'Shaughnessy, oh God, he's a genius, no. He's a blithering idiot. And it's all based on, you know, what happened over the last three months or three years. And so that differential is huge. And it allows you, if you can do it, to arbitrage it. So kind of that's what Quant is trying to do. It's trying to continuously improve these security selection models. But the reason it works over long periods of time is it immunizes you from the emotional decision-making that makes all those sellers sell at the bottom of the market and makes all those buyers buy at the top of the market. 
by immunizing your emotional reactions, you get a sustainable edge. Now, does that happen all the time? No. There are strategies. We have some value strategies that underperformed for years. And, And again, what happens? People are people, right? You know, Jim, I really believed all of your data. It looks really good, but now you're wrong. And I'm, I'm pissed at you <laughs> because <laughs> you convinced me that you had this great strategy and now I'm losing money and they, you get fired. So like, it's it not just quants, it's all asset managers, right? You, it's a sine wave, right? You go from hero, goat, hero, goat, hero, goat. And that's because your time frame, your time horizon is wrong. And probably because you can at any second in the stock market, you can you can choose a result where in private markets, you don't fully know. Bingo, bingo. Was there a time like when you were young that you're like, I'm going to do quant and then I'm just going to I'm trying to simplify the question as much as I can. When you built the first model, how did you know is like, OK, the model's good to go like this is the algorithm we're going with. What was the green light that you got? Was that a bunch of researchers came together, met in a room and said, this is as good as we can do. Like, how does an, a quant investor know they got their algorithm right, at least for that day? Well, first off, it's not just for that day. Yeah, or that uh, strategy. I, I that, that our stuff is long-term oriented as opposed to super short. They're very different. So, so one is the algorithmic super fast traders, right, who are making decisions second by second, right? And they, they have to have their computers located really close to the stock exchange because they're looking for a very different edge than a quant like me who's looking for an edge that is more sustainable. But how do, how do you do it? You let, you're an empiricist. You look at the data, right? I People used to say, oh my God, I wrote another piece in 2009 of March called a generational buying opportunity. And like everybody was saying, oh, in hindsight, you are such a genius. No, I'm not. I was just looking at the numbers. And you let the empirical data inform you, right? So how do you make up your mind? Well, first off, you have to look as over as many market cycles as you can. Because some things are popular for like five years, And if you're just looking at five years, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, right? Because value investing became very popular right after the crash of the dot-com. But, and then everyone was like, oh, this works fabulously well. Well, it does over long periods of time, but worked particularly well over that short period of time. Back in the 60s and in the dot-com, the stocks with the highest valuations did the best for a persistent amount of time that changed a lot of minds, right? So you got to see as much data as you can over as many market cycles as you can. Remembering, as long as it's human beings pricing securities, the underlying names are going to be different, but what they're loving or hating is not going to be all that different, right? So get as much data as possible, stress test it as much as possible. What's the worst case scenario, right? Most people have no clue about what worst case scenarios are. We had a a strategy at my first firm, O'Shaughnessy Capital, 
we still have the strategy. We renamed it at, at O'Shaughnessy Capital. It was, re, it was called Cornerstone Growth, essentially that cheap stock on the men strategy that I mentioned earlier. And, and so it, it, in my first version of my book proved to be like the best performing strategy. So when clients would come in, what strategy do you think they would want? That one. And so one of the things that I would do is say, okay, let me do this though. And then I would put up on the screen the 10 worst drawdowns that that strategy had going all the way back to the 1950s. They were huge. And like you knew instantly whether the client was going to be the right client for that particular strategy by their reaction. Like the ones who looked at it and their eyes got super wide and like, oh, there's no way, there's no way I could handle that. We gave them much more conservative, right? But what, what, what does that mean? We're giving people information. We're giving them evidence. Like, again, back to doctors. Are you going to go to a doctor who's going to say, hey, Chris, I, you know, this guy, this pharmaceutical rep just dropped these little yellow pills off. And I really like that guy. And so I'm going to give them to you and see if they work for you. You're going to run as far and as fast as you can away from that doctor. If on the other hand, you go to a doctor, he gives you the full workup and he comes back to you and he says, Chris, generally you're in really great health. You do have this problem. I'm going to prescribe this medication. And the reason I'm prescribing that is because of all of this double blind tests, evidence over a variety of different types of patients. You're going to want evidence, right? And so. That's what quants want. We want evidence. We, we understand that we're probably going to be wrong much more. We understand that our emotions are going to get involved. It's like you're in real estate. Real estate is kind of the king of, Ooh, I, you know, <laughs> that's my house, right? Or that, or, or that's where my office is going to be because it's so cool and it's so, you know, great location and all that. It's all our emotional side, right? Yep. And so it, 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 it's present everywhere, right? Like, why does advertising work? It works because it appeals not to our, analytical mind, it, it appeals to our emotional mind, right? We want to fit in back to our evolutionary, but then we want to stand out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of a, a short version of why quantitative can, can be very effective. Final thought on it, though. Quant is not right for everybody. I always say to people, that for the vast majority of investors, honestly, who are not interested, who don't, who aren't passionately curious about it, who don't understand what's kind of like the underlying evidence suggests, right? For those people, index your portfolio. Pick a, pick a world ETF that has the, the lowest management cost. You can get them for like 10 basis points, right? And then just dollar cost into your 401k or your IRA. You know what? It, th you're done. You're done. You don't, you don't have to be on FinTwit. You don't have to like watch CNBC or read the Wall Street Journal every day and, and read all of the analyst reports. And you're going to be much happier. You're going to probably end up doing better than 90% because again, persistent investment over time. 
But there are other investors who really do love all that stuff. And they think, yeah, not quant. Like, I, I have this unique insight. And you know what? Some people do. It's just hard identifying them ahead of time, right? And so you, what I always counsel people is find what's right for you. Find what's right for Chris. You're going to have a completely different outlook on your objectives, your goals, everything you might want than, than I do. And so when you can find something that resonates with you, that means that's probably something you're going to be able to stick with. And that's kind of the secret. The secret is persistent investment over time, right? Very hard to do. It, it just sounds so simple. Everyone's like, well, of course. Well, you know, if you've got a dog, right? And you just were at the store and you you saw that, you know, the, oh, his favorite dog food is right there. And so you bought a dozen cans, right? And then you're in that same store the next day and you see the same dog food half off. In real life, in the real world, you'd, you'd stock up, right? You'd say, this is awesome. My Fido loves this. And I, I have the opportunity to buy much more at, at 50% lower in price. In the stock market, what do you do? You rush home, <laughs> take the 12 that you bought at the higher price and bring them back to the store and say, I want a <laughs> refund. <laughs> Oh my! Oh, that's so true. Why do we do that? Is that because, and you wrote this quote, because 45% of our investment choices in life are the genetics in which we're born. Is it something to do with how we're predisposed emotionally that we would, obviously the case you made for dog food is so obvious. Why in the stock market do we treat it differently? Is it because we think about money differently or is there some other emotion that's elicited that makes us do that? I think that we think about dog food differently, right? So we, it, that's something we do know. We do know what our favorite pet really, what his or her favorite food is, right? So it's a real simple, it is not a multi-factor decision-making process, right? It's this is my pet's favorite dog food. It just went half off. Easy. I'm going to buy a lot of it because it's going to stay, it's canned and blah, blah, blah. In the market, oh, very different. Multifaceted, multi-opinions, multi-people saying, pounding the table, like this stock is going to do great. And then there's the other guys over here, gals over here saying, this is a disaster. It's going to you know, go way, way down. And so as we're being bombarded by all of these various opinions and the market is collapsing, what's our basic instinct of all humans, not just humans, all animals, fight or flee, right? And so flee is what operates at market bottoms. I'm going to flee. I am in danger right? Because that gets back to the whole money angle. Listen, what is money? Money is an information technology. That's what it is. And, and people have such screwed up ideas about money. 
And, and because they tie it to themselves, they tie it to their self-worth, they tie it to, can I feed my family? Right. And those are, those are the, especially can I feed my family? That's a, that's an actually a very important thing to think about. But if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? As, as you, as you get love, as you get basic food, shelter, right? That's the bottom of the pyramid. And yet we carry our emotions with us up to the top of the pyramid. And most of us, at least in this country, thank God, and globally, by the way, the progress that's been made fighting things like hunger, fighting dysentery, fighting, you know, people not having access to clean water. Like over the last 20 years, the improvements have been extraordinary, right? And yet we're always looking for novel dangers, right? That is part of our human programming. And so that gets bundled up in, we have this kind of incorrect attitude about money, about what that means, all of that. And then you have a short-term thing happening. The Dow went down 950 points today. (laughs) Is it ever going to stop? (laughs) Details at 11, right? We like doom. Again, back to human programming, we are programmed to seek out novel dangers. That's good programming, right? If we see a novel danger over there, we're going to do, we're going to fight or flee, right? So the problem is that switch is never turned off. And so we see things that are not actually novel dangers, like a bear market, right? And, and we see them. Our nervous system and our brain sees them as a novel danger. Like the, whenever you hear always or never, right? You know, you're in a really dangerous territory. Always and never. Like if you can ban those from your thought process, you're going to be so much better off because Ben Stein, you know, the guy in, in Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Bueller, his dad was a really renowned economist and he said unsustainable trends tend not to sustain themselves (laughs) so so always like the, the these this stock is always going to go up no it's not right this stock is never going to recover true in some cases companies do go bankrupt right but when and here's another problem right that happens at the individual stock level all the time. Lots of companies do, in fact, go bankrupt, and they are never going to recover. But a big portfolio of stocks that makes that uh, de minimis occurrence if, because you've got diversity there. This, this leads into, and we're about to get into OSV, but you said there's a huge difference between probabilities and possibilities. I think it's a perfect time to layer this question in. What do you mean by that? And after everything we've just talked about, I felt like it was the perfect time to introduce this concept. Yeah, this is, you know, I always say that we are deterministic thinkers living in a probabilistic world and usually hilarity or tragedy often ensue. A deterministic (laughs) thinker is someone, uh, yes, no, zero, 100, you know, Aristotelian logic, it's either this or that. Those are the only two choices. That's not the way the world works. If you know anything about physics, you know that most things are maybe, 
<laughs> they're not a yes or a no, they're a maybe. And, you know, quantum indeterminacy and, you know, that happens at the societal level too. So, so what do I mean by that? Probabilities are pretty easy to create, right? Like, look at what is the base rate? You know, what's the batting average? How often did, how often does the, the home run king strike out? Most people intuitively don't understand that they strike out a lot, right? But their overall base rate, the probability of the slugger getting the home run much higher than the duffer who's got a base rate of like striking out 95% of the time <laughs> and maybe getting a single or a double 5% of the time, yeah. right? So we confuse that science of probabilistic thinking with possibilities. Now, if I was going to think in possibilities, we probably wouldn't be on this podcast because I would be terrified that the, it was possible a plane might land <laughs> and kill me today or the sun could explode. It's possible. Yeah. Is it probable? People confuse possible with probable. And it creates all sorts of wrong think. So is it possible that the United States could have a revolution and turn into a totalitarian dictatorship? Sure, it's possible. Is it probable? No, nah, not probable at all. So when we think in terms of the possible, we let a lot of that stuff freak us out because it's possible, even though it's like this small, it's possible that the sun could go supernova tomorrow <laughs> and then we're all gone and it really doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so imagine thinking that that was probable, right? If you thought that the probabilities of the sun going supernova tomorrow were 90%, what are you going to do? You're probably going to do a lot of reckless, crazy things. I know I would, right? It's our last day on earth. Let, you know, let's party like it's 1999. And, and so that is the conundrum that people face. They, they mistake and insert possible occurrences, which are usually quite rare and have very low probabilities of occurring. And they conflate them with probabilities. And then they get you know, this is going to happen, right? And generally speaking, that's why I say it leads to either tragedy or hilarity uh, because you get a bunch of people doing pretty stupid things. Yeah. And, and the world has changed a bit on that. In a podcast you were on a couple of years ago, you just had said something similar to the tune of when you first started watching the news, it was 30 minutes of pretty neutral. Here are the facts. Yankees won the World Series. You know, there was a storm in California and blah, blah, blah. And then you're on. And now we live in a 24-7, 365 across a thousand mediums where we're speaking and pretty much this is going to happen. The world is ending. We are going to war, blah, blah, blah. But it seems it seems to have at least made maybe probably more folks live in what you would call the the very much yes or no world. Like this is happening or no, it's not. 
Yeah, I, I don't really know if that's a question, but it's it's an observation of of why maybe more people are thinking that way this day. It's clearly it's a good observation, and you know there just isn't that much news for twenty four hours seven. That's relevant, right? Like Claude Shannon's information theory basically posits that information is novel, right? So it's something new, and it draws our attention. And the fact is that the the news isn't novel at all. It is essentially various reality tunnels or belief systems that reinforce and confirm whatever you happen to be, right? So it's tribalism. It's devolved back into tribalism because the internet took away all that sweet, sweet advertising revenue. And they got to come up with other things. You got to find an audience, right? You got to be more narrow cast than broadcast. And so what do you do? Well, you look at this particular tribe. What do they believe? What don't they believe? And you program according to it. So it's like, I don't care if you're on team red or team blue. They're both using the same operating system, right? So so we're going to have Team Red over here shouting about this and that, and we're going to have Team Blue over here shouting about this and that. And the fact is you're being conditioned, right? And, and the soul of propaganda is to sow fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, and I stopped watching news, TV news in particular, and there's a reason why it's different than reading the news or reading something on Twitter. I'll get to that in a minute. But I stopped watching TV news about 12, even more years ago, because I just became absolutely convinced that it was devolving very, very rapidly and badly into these fake trumped up arguments that are just there to serve the tribe, right? And like when I occasionally glance at and I don't care what network we're talking about here. Let's be very clear about this. It, they're all guilty. And, you know, I, I used to joke that, boy, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine George Orwell, who wrote 1984. In, in the book, he had the two-minute hate, right? And the two-minute hate was you got all of the believers to hate on whatever thing you were going to try to be opposed to. Well, now we have 24-hour hate. And, and so unfortunately, back to human OS, right? The, 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 the dark side is more appealing to many people because they're fearful about it, right? And, and so they're drawn to it, right? Like train wrecks, you know, can't look away. And, and, and so it's our underlying programming that makes that really easy to sow fear, uncertainty, doubt, and keep people seeking the safety of their particular tribe. And so it's like, I know a lot of elderly people who like, their lives are miserable because they still watch TV news like all day long. And, you know, the people I care about, I'll come in, I'll shut it off and I'll say, Let's listen to music instead. That that is they're they're programming you. You don't want to be programmed. Now, why TV? TV is possibly the best hypnotic medium 
that you could ever stumble upon, right? Our brains have a really hard time distinguishing real from not real, right? So a lot of people don't believe this. And all I would tell you is go to a horror movie and do you jump? Do you start to sweat? Does your heartbeat increase or more in a naughty fashion? Have you ever watched a triple X rated movie? Mm. Your brain thinks that that's real. Just like the horror movie where you're jumping and you're terrified, you have actual physical responses in your body to these things that are not real, right? And on a much less controversial nature, that's what the news, it's a one-way medium. It's not a two-way. And it puts you in, puts your brainwave patterns into almost a hypnotic trance. And so that's why I, I think that you've, you've got to, again, back to curation, right? You've got to curate aggressively in this new world. And like, if you want the highest return on investment, that if that's why you're tuning in to listen to me, stop watching the TV news. About two weeks later, your brain fog is going to lift. You're going to feel so much better. And you're going to be like, what the hell? You know, why was I so angry? When you, when you, 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 if you travel around our country, America, like your average American is really a good person for the most part. And, and like, what do we focus on? We focus on the divisiveness, the anger, the hatred. Go, go spend some time with your average American. They're actually really reasonable. It, you know, go along with whatever you want to do that helpful, all of these things. And, and so we have this mask that gets put over us that blinds us from seeing that, like, go, go to, a, you know, take a road trip and, and watch what happens when you break down. I have, this Amer- I have this American flag in here as a constant reminder of how lucky I am to be in this country and how great of a country it is. We have, like all things in life, we have our challenges and we make mistakes here and there. But just like you said, if you just go get out in the world, there's some incredible people here. And the majority of people want to live a good life and do good things. Absolutely. And by the way, it's not just in America where the majority of people want to do Yes, that. all over the world. Personal. Yep. But the, the, the beauty of America is we were founded during a very unusual time in the zeitgeist of the moment. We were founded during the age of reason and the enlightenment. That's why we've got a constitution. That's why this is a constitutional republic. And most importantly, that's why we have a bill of rights. And that really does distinguish America from other countries, right? For most of human history, the Sun King ran everything. And the Sun King was the Sun King because God appointed him to be the king of that. And that was that. And if you didn't go along with that, you were burned at the stake or guillotined or whatever. And so we had this brief shining moment where all of the thought of that particular period of time in the late 18th century, right, in 1776, was the, of the enlightenment of the rights of human beings, of all of those kinds of things. Now, did we get it right all the way? Of course not. We still allowed slavery, right? 
And, and so that got corrected. And did, did that mean that it was not horrible? <laughs> it was horrible. The fact that we allowed that, the fact that the world allowed that was a horrible, horrible thing. But we evolved, right? And, and we fixed it. And if you have a system that guarantees basic things, right? The right to say what you want, even if I disagree with it, right? Voltaire is famous for having been attributed to saying, he probably didn't actually say it. I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it, right? And, and that is the core of the First Amendment. And then we also have due process, right? We have that builds a trust-based society that all, by the way, these fear, uncertainty, and doubt folks are trying to disrupt because what do they want? They want you to trust them. I will keep you safe. You've got to give up a lot of your freedom, but I will keep you safe, right? The classic demagogue. And, and so one of the other things, like given all of the problems that we face, and we face a lot of problems, I, I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. But since I was born in 1960, I think more progress has been made in this country than like virtually any other one. Like in 1971, if you were a woman, you couldn't get a credit card without your husband's permission. How crazy is that? You, you, you couldn't, if you wanted to keep your maiden name like my sister did when she got married right around that time, you had to go to court. You had to go to court and say why you wanted to keep your maiden name. <laughs> so, so most people don't understand how much real progress we've made in this country in particular. And, and then there's the other thing. Don't, don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. What, what would happen if the United States simply said, Hey, guess what? You can come, you can come live and work here. All the smartest people in the world, for the most part, would come here. Again, empirical evidence, right? So I think that the, that we're very, very lucky and, and fortunate in this country because we have things like the due process, the right to free speech, et cetera. But those are fragile things. And, you know, it's, it's like, it doesn't make you a right winger or a left winger to believe in those basic principles. It used to be that that's what united most of this country, right? And, and so, yeah, we, we are, we are very uniquely blessed in this country for a variety of reasons, you know, in addition to the Constitution, rule of law, all of that. We also are devilishly hard for other countries to attack, right? Imagine if, if Canada, rather than being the lovely people that they are, were militaristic <laughs> and, and, you know, they had, you know, some North Korean type dictator at the top. That would be a whole different situation, right? And we'd be always on edge and like, they're going to invade us and all of this. And so we have this unique geography too that people don't really think too much about. And then transportation, our river systems. Like if you were designing a, a landmass for like success, it would look a lot like the United States. 
I've never heard someone say the river systems. That's interesting. Okay, you have taken the next part of your career and you've and in the last few minutes you've talked about moments you talked about when america was created you've talked about these times and you have a theory that's called the great reshuffle we're living through another moment in time you seem to have bet the next part of your career on a hopeful nature of abundance and all of what's now possible in the world but i wanted to start by just saying by asking what is the great reshuffle what are we going through from your perspective and why have you chosen to build your career on a theory of the great reshuffle so the great reshuffle is the result of all of our old models and playbooks collapsing why are they collapsing because we have created innovations and technologies that allow us to do things that never before in human history could be done. I mentioned earlier that I wouldn't, in 1950, unless I happened to go to the same college as you, or if I had a business that brought me to Fort Worth, you and I are never going to meet, ever, right? Now we have the great reshuffle starting with, we have global connectivity. I can find people in any part of the world that people don't even stop to think about how unusual that is. So one, one, of, the, one of the parts of my thesis here is that because we have global connectivity, because you and I can have this chat via a innovation, right? That allows us to do it in real time and record it and send it out into the ether. All of these tools are making the old school way of doing things very, very out, you know, their sell-by date has been reached. And so used to be, for example, as part of what we do at O'Shaughnessy Ventures, we have these fellowships, right? And that was to test the thesis that used to be in the pre-global interconnected world, a genius was born, lived, and died, and nobody knew that he or she was a genius. They didn't probably even know it, right? Now, that's not true anymore. Now, because of all of the network effects that the world enjoys right now, if you're brilliant and you're in Nepal or you're in the dragon kingdom of Bhutan, doesn't matter. You got connection to the internet, you can put your brilliance out there. You can do it on Twitter, you can do it on social networks, you can create things. And equally important, you have access to a suite of tools that, like, what did Arthur C. Clarke say? That a technology that is so advanced is indistinguishable from magic? Well, we're living in an era where our technology is perceived as magical because people in the Dragon Kingdom of Bhutan can work for O'Shaughnessy Ventures. That would have never happened in the past at all. And so one of the things we do with the fellowships is I believe that we can now find and fund these brilliant thinkers. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're finding this is the first year of it, so we don't have any real evidence to be able to point to. But 
the anecdotal things that we're learning as we watch these incredible creators. You, Chris, you should see the applications that we got. Like from all around the world, the absolute genius of people. It's, it's just, it blows my mind. It's incredible. It was one of the hardest things in the world for our team to narrow it down to just the 12 fellows that we have. So as part of that, things like distributed workforces, you see everyone saying, well, got to go back to the office, got to do it this way. No, you don't. You really don't. Now, if your preference is that you prefer to work in an office, okay, we were talking about one of my colleagues, right? He, he, he prefers to work in an office-like environment. He doesn't want to work at his apartment because that's the way he's built, right? So great. You have a space for him and he can go there. But my entire O'Shaughnessy Ventures team is predicated on this thesis. Like I have people all over the world. I have people in India. I have people in Singapore. I have people in the UK. I have people everywhere here in the United States. Now, what about, don't you think you should get together in real life? Absolutely. As part of what we're doing, we will get together at a minimum annually and for a, a good chunk of time, right? So that that those happy things that aren't planned can happen, right? You can, you can vibe with somebody else and, and, oh, what a great idea, right? But you can do that here too, right? So I talk to team members like daily and it doesn't matter where they are. We like, well, what do you think about this? Oh, that's a good idea. And then I'll find, you know, where we can do that. So the other thing that's happening is we're moving from a world that was designed for mass production and mass consumption to the, the, the traditional bell curve, right? The traditional bell curve is 68% are in the middle right? And then you get into the tails and, and those people were ignored for the most part by TV, by people making products, by everybody, because it made sense, right? What's my market? What's my total addressable market? My total addressable market is that 68% in the middle. That's why I love Lucy. The most viewers they ever had was like 63 million people watched I Love Lucy. Game of Thrones had maybe 18 million. So the idea of mass production and mass consumption is gone. Right now, you can narrow cast, you can narrow down a product, and you're going to find your people that are interested in that particular thing. People will say, I I was talking to somebody yesterday, and, and he was saying, I just think I'm too late to start a podcast. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's the early innings and you're going to be able to create, you know, power laws rule the world, unfortunately, right? The 80-20, like they do. And, and the fact is though, when a power law ruled the world and there was a traditional bell curve, kind of hard to stand out, right? So what did you do? You fit in. You watched I Love Lucy. You got your job. You wore the man in the gray flannel suit. And you went to work for the corporation that dictated <laughs> what you could and couldn't do. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's gone. Yeah. That's gone. 
and you can like you 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 can make a hundred million dollars on a good fishing app. Why? Because there's a lot of people who love to fish, and you might have an app that allows you to say, "Wow, look at this! I not only can brag, right? I just caught this huge fish. Take a picture of it, put it on your little fishing app with your friends who are also fishermen or fisherwomen." And then you can say, ooh, what would happen if we added a geotag to that photo so that people could find where you caught that fish? And suddenly you get a really sticky app, right? Now, is it going to get 68 million users? Of course not. It doesn't matter. And so right now you can create, you can become a king of a lot of smaller hills right? That's why we have infinite media. That's why we are building that out. The ability to narrowcast, to be the king of a niche, the king of the of that particular thing, there's a ton of niches. And all of that opportunity goes against the old playbook, right? And so does that affect everything? Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> right? So corporate speak, like people know bullshit, right? Yeah. It was decided that, right, passive voice, <laughs> it was decided that our view on this, well, you know, and, and anyone watching it is like, oh my God. It's like watching a politician of any stripe. They're just bullshitting you continuously, right? And that gets back to Claude Shannon information theory. You turn it off, right? Now, authenticity is going to be able to be a real asymmetric advantage. Because one of the things that we are pretty good at is, is this guy bullshitting me or does he or she seem authentic? So you're you're getting a thing like my son, Patrick, has a fabulously successful podcast empire under the name Colossus. And he added David Senra when he's got a podcast called The Founders Podcast. He's killing it. What does David do? He he does something that would have not been a conceivable job 15 years ago. He reads biographies of the greatest founders that he's interested in, but he reads them all. And then he takes notes. And then he does an hour, an hour and a half, a two-hour podcast where it's just him giving what he learned about that particular founder. Huge, huge audience, huge potential, huge everything. Impossible 15 years ago, right? Because he wouldn't have the reach. So what's happened is a lot of opportunities are now being presented to people who understand what's happening and who reject the old playbooks, who reject the this is the standard operating procedure here. Now, am I saying that it is applicable to everything? No, there are certain things that you've got to run according to a, a standard operating procedure, et cetera. But if you look at our website, which is osv.llc, you'll see the verticals and they all interconnect if you figure it out, right? Like infinite media, because there's going to be massive tons of opportunity there for all sorts of different people to conquer those hills. We want to be part of that. 
infinite films. You don't have to spend $100 million and get theaters to take a movie anymore. You can spend a lot less. You can give everyone who made that film ownership of the film. And guess what? You'll probably be able to sell it to one of the multiple streamers. Worst case scenario, you put it on YouTube yeah. and charge for it, <laughs> right? Yep. And so, and then at what we call infinite adventures, the original term for venture capital was adventure capital, which I love. I, 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 I even like the, the more bracing, if you will, term that they used to call venture capital. They used to call it liberation capital. Because in the old days, you worked for a company. You wouldn't even think about starting your own company. What are you mad? I'd start my own company? No, that I can't do that. And tell people started to, to do that with a venture. Now, obviously we had all of the people like JP Morgan combining all the steel companies and creating US steel. So a small group of people believe that, but nothing like what you saw when ventures started. Right. And, and so that's changed too. And because I now have the ability of what I call a loose network, the loose network I have is global. And I have the ability to peer into interesting situations in Africa, in Botswana, in Bangladesh, in Fort Worth. And that gives me, combined with these people who are now native to these tools, right? Like I'm, I'm 63. I'm, I'm not native to the internet. And now I've tried as much as I can to stay up to speed on it. But the fact is we now have this group of younger people who are digital natives, and it's amazing what they can do because they know where all the tools are, they know how they work together, and they know how to create things with them. And so I definitely think we are going into almost a golden era for new innovation, new types of companies, new types of doing things. And that's kind of what we're trying to pursue with the O'Shaughnessy Venture. God, I love it. I've got a couple more questions. One, what's interesting is you don't have LPs. This is your money. There is no principal agent issue. There is no board of directors that need your permission. And in a lot of your discussions, you've said, look, I can make decisions that other people can't make. I was just wondering if you could describe like what's something that you've done already at OSV that if you had other LPs, maybe you wouldn't have done or maybe you wouldn't have been able to do as quickly. And why are people attracted to coming to you because of what your flexibility is? So like almost everything, (laughs) (laughs) I'm making a movie about an extraordinary man named Dr. David Roney. I met him at Capital Camp. I invested very early in Stability AI, which is a generative AI company. Very speculative. If I'd had LPs, would they have questioned that? Of course they would. So... The idea, and by the way, I'm not saying I'm going to be right or wrong. I I could crash and burn on a lot of these things. And that's the other thing, right? It allows me by not having other, I don't have to be a fiduciary. What? Why did you do Stability AI, which is turning out to be super interesting, but was there 
early on when you looked at it, what was so crazy about it that maybe most people maybe would have stayed away from, or maybe it just wouldn't have made it through the typical venture investment committee? Several things. I I had been interested in machine learning and AI for a long time because I think it's the next frontier for quant. And Stability AI did something that was quite extraordinary and really was the starting gun for all you've seen over the last year of all the developments in AI. They open-sourced a a stable diffusion model with its weights. Now, I don't want to get really nerdy here, but for the most part, if you try to use AI, you don't get the weights. Those are the secret sauce, right? If you open source a model with the weights, every creator in the world can use that model in a different thing to build something new and different. And so what happened afterwards I made my investment in August of last year, and and I knew that they were going to be open sourcing it. And my thesis was, this is going to be a drop in a boulder in a still pond. Because my thesis was, look, one of the problems people have is that I know what's right. You don't know what's right. I'm, I'm the one who should control this, not you. I have a much more generative idea. And that is, there are so many talented people out there that I have no idea about right now. I couldn't either find them or whatever, even with all of the global connectivity. And so my thesis was, what's going to happen is a bunch of incredible use cases are going to be found that nobody had thought of in the past. That's why I think open source, that's why Linux runs the web, open source. It's open source because cognitive diversity, like you think differently than I think, and I think differently than the fellow over there, right? What you want is you want as much cognitive diversity because like there's a great quote, I can't remember who it is, but it was like, no matter how smart a human being is, no matter how clever, no matter how insightful, you can never ask that human being to make a list of things that would never occur to them, right? And so they occur to other people. And so the the when, when I actually made that investment, if I'd had LPs and I gave them that pitch, they'd be like, mm, can I have my money back, Jim, please? <laughs> You're batshit crazy, man. <laughs> and so the 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 more formal way of looking at it is it's the agent principle problem, right? M- most people who work at a venture firm are are not investing their own capital. Capital they they have to have a fiduciary mindset. I try to. I mean, I can't escape mine, right? Because it I did it for so long, but. I only have to be a fiduciary for me. <laughs> so I, I'm the only one I get to blame. But if I'm thinking about it in terms of like, ooh, could, could, would, would a prudent person make this? And there's a thing on Wall Street called the prudent man rule. And now it's been expanded. Prudent man rule used to prohibit investing in equities, which was insane. 
but we learned, right? And then we expanded it. So the agent principal problem is just there's so many levels of it. Because like if I'm at a young guy or gal at a, at, at a VC and I got my shot, right? What do I want to do? I want to impress the senior partners. I want to make partner. I want to do all those things. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to take any kind of thing that even looks or smells like risky, crazy, et cetera. Now, we invest in a lot of not crazy things. You know, Capital Camp, that's my friend Brent B. Shore. We have a big investment in permanent equity because it makes sense to us. And so it's not crazy at all. But on, on the real venture side, we have the ability to push further down the curve. Like that's where all the cool stuff is going to happen anyway. Right. And, you know, the more profound the discovery, the more obvious it appears afterwards. And, and so what we have the privilege of being able to do is if we gain conviction, we pull the trigger. I'll end it on this. If OSAN, if if OSV succeeds and we're doing this 30 years from now, looking back, and you talked at the very beginning, you'll be taking notes in your journal and there will be themes that have occurred. What will have happened? What does success look like in all this? Because this is the new frontier. There isn't evidence that a lot of these things are going to work. You came from a world of a lot of evidence. Now, the evidence might be that humans are humans and we can make judgments based on that, but we're heading into what you called the great reshuffle. Like, What will success look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? Great question. So I think what it looks like is that everything that OSB has done has been a win-win outcome. In other words, it's not a scarcity world, it's an abundance world where everyone that we interact with or fund or employ or in any way work and touch with is better for our interaction than worse off. And that can mean a lot of things, right? Like we can look at the world of investment. Everyone that we fund, succeed or fail, by the way, are better because they worked with us and then maybe learned so much that they then founded another company that maybe we invested in as well. And then together that grew into the next Apple or the next NVIDIA, right? That's crazy. That's not going to happen. <laughs> you uh, never know. You never know, right? And and then what else is going to success going to look like? All those fellows are going to be recognized. They're going to get jobs that they couldn't have gotten. They're going to get found companies that they couldn't have founded. And look, we're trying to push the world and humanity forward. That sounds very idealistic, but we're trying to do it very pragmatically, right? Films, right? Hopefully you're going to see a bunch of movies that the big movie companies would never make, right? So the, I don't know if you're a fan of Rudy, Oh, I love Rudy. Uh, okay, so so do I. And how come we're not making Rudy's anymore? How come we're not making movies that inspire? Well, I think the movie about David, Dr. David Roney is going to inspire a lot of people because he's an inspirational person. 
And we can do it because we have a different underlying formula for making that movie. What else can happen out of that? Well, some graduate from NYU film school, 24, he or she might get the chance to helm a movie. Do you know how rare that is? It's almost never happens. So if we if we get overly focused on, well, but Jim, what if the movie doesn't make any money? Okay, movie doesn't make any money, but that director might have just gotten the opportunity of a lifetime and you know, put their career in hyperdrive where normally they wouldn't get a chance to direct a movie until they'd paid their dues, joined the, you know, director's guild, all of those things. We we can negate those. And we can do that in our investments. We can do that in the movies that we make and the podcasts and the YouTubes and the substacks that we fund and partner with. And it's just really exciting. And so I guess that's what success looks like. Jim, this has been one of my most fun conversations. And like I said at the beginning, getting to research and learn more about you was was a real treat. I really appreciate you doing today's episode with me. Well, Chris, thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation as well. So <laughs> it's a win-win. Win-win. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 